Well, if you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 20. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 20. We're going to be in 2041 through 21 verse 4, okay? We're going to bridge this unfortunate chapter break that you have in your Bibles this morning. Next week, we're going to start a three-week break from Luke for a short Christmas series, and then after the 24th, we'll pick back up where we left off in 21.5 of Luke, okay? And we'll be in John 1 all the next three weeks. Um, so if you're somebody who just brings your scripture journal, bring your whole Bible, all right? Uh, but today, Luke 20, verses 41 through 21.4, my rambling should have gotten you there. So if you got it, say, I got it. It also be behind me on the screen for you to follow along there as well. Let's read this together. The Holy Spirit says through a doctor named Luke, but he said to them, this is Jesus, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. 21 verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. <clears throat> Amen. This is God's word, and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight, losing my religion trying to keep up with you, and I don't know if I could do it. Oh, no, I've said too much. I haven't said enough. These perhaps vaguely familiar words are some of the lyrics found in a 1991 song released by a band from Athens, Georgia, called R.E.M., and the song is called Losing My Religion. It's a song that's credited as launching R.E.M. into greater heights of stardom, as well as being one that has endured the test of time. Uh, having passed 1 billion views on YouTube just last year. And it's a song whose lyrics have been interpreted in a variety of different ways, uh, which makes sense since R.E.M. is known as a band to have somewhat vague lyrics that are open to interpretation. Some believe that the song is about to, is the song to be about being someone who was at one time very religious, or brought up in church, and subsequently losing their faith. So in that sense, it would be about someone who was, at one level or another, religious for a while, but had become maybe an agnostic or an atheist, or in modern parlance had deconstructed or become what's called exvangelical and just isn't religious anymore. Others have used it not in the sense of that they were once a Christian and have become unbelievers, but in the sense that they are spiritual but not religious. 
this is a descriptor you may have heard before, spiritual but not religious, as it's grown in popularity over the last several de- decades. The idea here is that the person is still a believer, but they reject religion because religion has a pejorative meaning to them. Uh, it is a rejection of institutional religion or the keeping of a set of rules and instead embracing a sort of individualistic me and Jesus sort of faith. In this view, they are losing their religion in that they are casting off what they perceive to be a corrupt or legalistic institution. But now, the question has to be asked, what did the songwriters actually intend for it to mean? What does it mean to lose my religion? Now, he actually didn't mean either of those ways I've mentioned, and it really doesn't have much to do with religion at all. He actually meant losing my religion in the southern expression or slang of the phrase, which means being at the end of one's rope or where one's politeness gives way to anger. So like I'm at the DMV to renew my license and I've been waiting an hour and if I have to wait any longer, I will lose my religion. Or if Uncle Frank would have gone on any longer about politics at Thanksgiving dinner, I was going to lose my religion. But it's interesting, isn't it? How societally we've come to use the word religion in derogatory terms. Even amongst Christians, the idea has risen in popularity that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. Have you heard that before? Or that it's the opposite of a relationship with God, uh, or it pits gospel verse religion, or that is about trying to earn God's favor, or that religion is sort of a, a rote mechanical stifling system of rituals and dogmas and structures that must give way to the vastly superior idea of spirituality. So when we hear a song like Losing My Religion in a context like ours, it's no wonder that we adopt it as sort of an anthem for our rejection of what we think is an inherently bad thing. Let me give you another example. About 10 years ago, a spoken word video by this this fellow named Jefferson Bethke made its rounds, where the first line of this poem was, what if I told you that Jesus came to abolish religion? And the idea of the whole poem is just that Jesus hates religion. And, And people like that. That's why it has 35 million views on YouTube. Kevin DeYoung, reflecting on that poem, said, whether this argument is fair depends on your definition of religion. Bethke sees religion as a man-made attempt to earn God's favor. Religion equals self-righteousness, moral preening, and hypocrisy. Religion is all law and no gospel. If that's religion, then Jesus is certainly against it. But that's not what religion is. DeYoung continues, saying Jesus hates religion communicates something that Jesus hates self-righteousness doesn't. To say that Jesus hates pride and hypocrisy is old news. To say Jesus hates religion, now that has a kick to it. People hear religion and think of rules, rituals, dogmas, pastors, priests, institutions. People love Oprah and the shack and spiritual but not religious bumper stickers because the mood of our country is one that wants God without the structures that come with traditional Christianity. We love that Jesus hates religion. The only problem is he didn't. Indeed. Was it not Jesus' half-brother James who knew that Jesus didn't come into the world to principally demolish the idea of religion, which is why he described an epistle that bears his name what pure and undefiled religion looks like? 
the religious authorities of Jesus' day may have thought Jesus was losing his religion in the sense of casting off the religious system of Israel, but really when Jesus was, for example, cleansing the temple, he was losing his religion in the southern colloquial sense, that he had had enough of a religion of a certain kind. Instead of the dead religion of the religious leaders of his day, Jesus shows us the kind of religion we should have, the kind that is pure and undefiled, the kind that pleases God, a true religion, a religion that looks like Jesus and not one that looks like the scribes. You'll notice, look down at your text, our text has three sections, doesn't it? One in 20, verses 41 through 44, the second in 20, 45 through 47, and the third in 21, 1 through 4. These three scenes would seem unrelated, especially with this unfortunate chapter break I mentioned, are actually all connected. The three accounts together show that the way to God is not the religious leader's way of the day, that Jesus has a better way to true religion. So let's have three points, all right? One from each scene, and all of them will instruct us on how we can have true religion that is pleasing to God, okay? So point number one, true religion centers on Jesus. True religion centers on Jesus. That's our first point. We have seen throughout chapter 20 that all subsects of Sanhedrin have tried their hand at asking Jesus questions, thinking they will trip him up and trap him. They all fail, of course, so now we see in 41 40 through 44, Jesus saying, in essence, are you done with your silly little questions? Then I have one for you. And it's the most important question of all. As Ralph Martin said, after a day of questions come the question of the day. And the question Jesus asks centers on the identity of the Messiah. And it is directed towards the scribes. It is meant to initiate reflection rather than Jesus seeking the scribes to give him an answer. So what's the question? Jesus says, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son? And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, and attributes the psalm to David. This is what Psalm 110.1 says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Then Jesus asks the question again. David calls the Messiah Lord. So how is he his son? So what's the question Jesus is asking? I need you to follow the logic here, okay? And then you can check out when I'm done explaining this. In Psalm 110, David says that the Lord, who is Yahweh, said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So David is calling someone else Lord besides Yahweh. And this Lord is apparently so intimately connected to Yahweh that they are speaking to one another, and this Lord is handed the rule of all things, and David sees himself as subordinate to him. The Lord that David identifies as my Lord is also being identified as the Messiah, who everyone was expecting as the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, when God promised David that a descendant of his would sit on the throne forever. So what's the dilemma that Jesus is posing? How can it be, says Jesus, that the Messiah is both David's son and his Lord? Why would David call his descendant his Lord? 
Who ever heard of such a thing? When have you ever heard of someone referring to their descendant as if they are subordinate to them? Have you ever heard a grandpa refer to their grandson as their Lord? Have you ever heard a dad call his son master? See, that's the absurdity that Jesus is saying. The Messiah must be more than simply a human descendant of David. This is his point. He must be someone who has an exalted status. He is David's descendant, yes, but he is also David's Lord and someone who would rule and reign to such an extent that his enemies would be his footstool. Do the religious leaders realize that the Messiah is not what they're expecting? See, as we've explored before, the people were eagerly anticipating the Messiah. But they thought that he would be a purely human person that God would use to vanquish his foes and would set up the kingdom of Israel on earth to reign forever. That's what they thought. They thought he would be a king in David line, yes, but merely a human king. So they wanted someone, for example, like this fellow named Simon Bar Kokoba, who would rise up about 100 years after Jesus spoke these words. Kokoba was a military leader. He led a violent revolt against Rome, and he had aspirations of setting up an independent Jewish state, and the people liked that. So they rallied around him. They called him King of the Jews. They printed money with his image on it, and they read their Old Testaments thinking it was prophesying about him. Well, guess what happened? Rome grew tired of him, and so they killed him, and he stayed dead. But while he was alive and fulfilling their ideas of what a Messiah should be like, they liked him. But once he died, they said, this can't be the Messiah, and they moved on to something else. See, that's what people expected. What they didn't expect even as they read Psalm 110 messianically, was for the Messiah to both be fully human and preexistent God. They had no category for that at all. I mean, do you? Let's be honest. Who has a category for fully God, fully man, equal fully God-man? Who has a category for preexistent God Entering flesh. Who is a category for a creator God being in the womb of a poor handmaiden and then squalling in arms that he made? Who has a category for what Martin Luther said, which was that while Jesus was nursing at Mary's breast, he was at the same time holding the universe together with his hands? Uh, who could dream up this truth that is articulated in the old Christmas song, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Who could come up with the idea that God came and walked among people on dirty streets and in tax collectors' houses? Who could see him walking on the seas he made and eating and drinking with a group of ragtag misfits that he'd call apostles? Who can think of the idea that he would allow himself to be killed by people he created in order that he would rise and then ascend? See, everyone looked at David as the best of kings. He was their ideal king. Sure, he had problems, they would say. But look at the list of kings that came after him. You guys know your Old Testament, right? It took one generation 
after him to mess everything up and divide the kingdom. One. And reading about those who came after him is an exercise in disappointment as one struggles to find a few good kings among the cavalcade of awful ones. So they looked at David the way later generations would look at King Arthur, whose tombstone read, the once and future king, because they had hoped their great king would make a return visit since all the other ones paled in comparison. But did Israel know that there would be a king who would come that was greater by leaps and bounds to even David? A king who would never sin, never slip up, never make one bad choice, never second guess or misstep. A king who is so vastly superior to David that one day David would bend his knee to this king. A king who David calls my Lord in glad submission. Yahweh only has one right hand, yes? Only one place in which authority, dominion, and power reigns, and who should occupy that exalted seat? A Davidic king, yes, but also cosmic Lord who is given the rule of all things. This is why the question from Jesus is the most important of the day. It's the most important question of all. What's more important question than who Jesus is? Can you think of one? Let's ask this another way around, okay? What is the essence of the gospel message? See, if you went out, let's say you left today, and you went out, and you asked 100 people in Cordial what the central point of the gospel was, what do you think they'd say? I'd tell you what they'd say. They'd say something like, Jesus died for my sins. Is that not what most people would say? That's not the central point of the gospel, though, is it? Of course, it's true that Jesus did die in place of mankind to atone for their sins. That's not the central point and purpose of the gospel. The center of the gospel is the person of Jesus. And the central fact of the good news is that Jesus is king. It's that the rightful king is on the helm of the universe and rules over it all with meticulous providence and that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is king as he sets everything to right. Jesus died for my sins is true, but it makes people the center of the gospel message, doesn't it? When the center of the gospel message is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the king who has subordinated everything to himself. Is that not good news? And we need to recover Jesus as the center of our lives and churches because any gospel that doesn't have Christ at the center is not the full gospel. And any religion that doesn't orbit around Jesus' center and life giver and sustainer must be deemed a false religion. As Michael Reeves reminds us, The center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, a system, or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. Now, before you go and you say, yeah, duh, let's ask this question. Is Jesus' centrality evident in our lives and our churches? It's one thing to mentally assent to these facts. Or to say them with our mouths. It's another for it to be shown in how we live. As a church, is the centrality of Jesus enough to draw and sustain, or must we turn to some other means? Can Jesus be the sole hero, or must we try to edge our way into sharing the spotlight? 
is Jesus enough to be the foundation and the focus and capstone, or should we put our creative heads together to try to come up with other ways to draw and sustain men and women? You know, you look on the front of your worship guide, you know, there's a reason it says, come behold the glory of Christ. This is no empty sloganeering, my friend. This is our primary methodology. And the goal of every gathering, because we believe that if we put this glorious Jesus before your eyes, and before your eyes, and before your eyes, that you will be someone who is knocked flat by his glory and is transformed by his splendor. And I don't mean this in a crass or flippant way, okay? But it does not matter much to your pastors if you leave every gathering thinking that you like the songs we sung, or thought the musicians were good, or that the preaching was enjoyable, or that the preacher was a skilled and entertaining orator. What matters to us is, did we put the glorious Christ before our people? Can they leave saying that Jesus was the hero? If the answer is the affirmative, then we consider the gathering a success. And the measurement of the value of our ministry is not how many people we could put in these chairs. It's were we faithful in putting Jesus before people who would be ruined by his beauty and strive towards faithfulness in their lives? You know, there's a story told that on one occasion a group of American pastors decided to travel to London in the 1880s, and they decided to hear the two greatest preachers of their day. So one Sunday, they went to a prominent church in London with a congregation of over 3,000 members. And the Americans were struck by the preaching, and they left marveling, saying, what a great preacher, what a great preacher. And the following Sunday, the pastors went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. This time, they left marveling and proclaiming, what a great savior. What a great savior. Shouldn't that be our aim? Not only of our church, but our lives? What change would there be in the way we live in the world if Jesus as king was the center of our hearts and minds constantly? If that's the most important truth in the history of the world, which I think it is, Shouldn't it be more than an incidental to our lives, don't you think? Quoting Reeves again, he said, sadly, so many Christians have a background virus in their understanding of the gospel here. It's not easy to spot, but it eats away at all their confidence in Christ. It's this, the sneaking suspicion that while Jesus is their savior, he's not really the creator of all. So they sing of his love on Sunday, and there it is true. But walking home through the streets, past the people and places where real life goes on, they don't feel it is Christ's world, as if the universe is a neutral place, as if Christianity is just something we have smeared on top of real life. Jesus is reduced to being little more than a comforting nibble of spiritual chocolate, an imaginary friend who saves souls, but not much else. The true religion that God accepts must be one that is centered on Christ, both theologically and functionally because our theology will flow out to how we live. See, if Jesus' identity, stick with me here, okay? If Jesus' identity as the Messiah, who has come from heaven to take on flesh, 
and lived and died in place of sinful man and was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father and thus has been given authority over everything until all of his enemies are crushed, then he must be the center of all history. And he must be the point of history. And he must be the purpose of all things. And he must be the one whose power is unrivaled. And he must be where all of history is leading Therefore, he must be the center of our lives too. What else makes sense? Can I ask you, friend, what are you centering your life on? Whatever it is, no matter how good it is, it might be a good thing. Whatever it is compared to Jesus is like comparing the sun to a match. Whatever your goal for life are, No matter how worthy you think they be, they can't compare to living for Christ. A choice, as always, must be made. And that choice, the choice that must be made, is inherent in what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? If Yahweh is telling the Messiah, rule until I make your enemies your footstool, then we must choose if he is going to be our king or our conqueror. Is that not inherent right here? Now make no mistake, whether or not people assent to the fact of Jesus' present and future kingship does not change the fact that Jesus is king. Now he's the king whether or not we want to acknowledge his rule. As C.S. Lewis once said, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. If God says to Jesus the Messiah, which he did, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool, it is done. He is in that exalted place. And the truth of the matter is, and you know this, don't you? We all will bend knee to him at some point. So what's the choice? The choice we have is to do it in this life or the next. If you don't give him allegiance now, he's still Lord But if you don't do that now, you'll do it at the end of the age, but then it will be too late. Friend, look at and ponder the glory of Christ and then make the choice, king or conqueror. When you let that settle in your heart and the greatness and sufficiency of Jesus in the center of your life on him, you will have true religion. But what does false religion that Jesus rejects look like? Well, this takes us to point number two. Point two, the kind of religion Jesus rejects. And just so you know, that first point was the longest of them all, all right? So don't fret. We're about a quarter of the way there. I'm kidding. So point two, the kind of religion that Jesus rejects. So Jesus asks this question about his identity, right? And he sort of leaves them to ponder it without ever waiting for a response, right? (laughs) Or expounding on it himself. And he turns to his disciples and he warns them about the scribes and explains the sort of things that the scribes do. That should be avoided. Verse, now, verse 45 is important. Okay? Jesus doesn't say this to the religious leaders, does he? He said it to the disciples. But loud enough for everyone nearby to hear him. And what he says requires reflection from us all. Further, what Jesus says here is in the present tense. Which means that his instructions are calling for a, a vigilant effort to always be watchful neither to follow the scribes nor imitate them. So what do the scribes do? There's four things, aren't they? 
They walk around in long, flowing, expensive robes. They love attention that they receive as they walk through the marketplace. They desire the first place of honor at the synagogue and the banquets, so they can be next to the host and seen by the people. They devour widows' houses and make sure their prayers are nice and long and rhetorically pleasing so that people are impressed by their piety. These are some of, but not all, marks of a religion that is false and rejected by God. See what they're doing? Do you see what the scribes are doing? They'd have these long, luxurious robes that they were distinguishable. You see them from a mile away. And they would be seen as men of wealth and eminence. When they walked down the street, you'd see them coming, and you were expected to rise as they passed you. When they went to the synagogue, they want to sit on the bench so they could face the congregation, be seen by everyone, and see everyone. Jesus is against a religion, listen, that is performative. The kind that must be seen and acknowledged. The kind that wants applause and attaboys from others. The kind that thinks that if people cannot see you doing the good deed, it's not worth doing. Jesus doesn't have any problem calling out religious leaders, does he? He does it all the time. But when he called out the Pharisees, he called them out for being hypocrites, right? For being whitewashed tombs that, that looked clean and holy and pious on the outside, but they were dirty and dead on the inside. But the scribes aren't hypocrites in that sense here. Look what they do. They're strutting around like peacocks. They have no scruples with being honored and showered with praise. They're proud and it shows. Whereas the Pharisees were proud but could hide it better, the scribes are obviously prideful and attention seekers. Even still, people thought they were among the most pious people in the nation. But the question is implicit here, right? Would they even would they serve even if they received no attention? No accolades, no acknowledgement, and no respect from the populace. What do you think? You think the scribes would serve if no one could see them? Could they serve God for God's sake? Or were they serving for their own sake, for their own gain? See, is this not the problem that we saw a few weeks ago in the parable of the greedy tenants? Right? The fruit of the vineyard belonged to the vineyard owner. And thus, it should have been produced for the owner right? Yet what happened? The tenants were greedy and they kept the fruit for themselves. Jesus' one-to-one correlation in the parable is you produce good fruit in order to offer them to God, not spend them on yourself. The scribes served for their own sake, for their own gain, for their own reputation, and God's glory was, quite frankly, none of their concern. You guys have been to Sunday school? What are the two greatest commands? Love God Love neighbor as self. How are the scribes doing according to these two verses? They didn't love God since they served for their own vain pride. They didn't love neighbors since they took advantage of the most vulnerable people in the nation. We could say with the prophets in the strongest words that God hated their religion and he would have no part of it, therefore it was rejected. But again, my friend, who is Jesus telling this to? So he's telling it to the disciples. Why? Because they were susceptible to the same kind of pride because they're people, right? The same kind of pride, same kind of empty religion, the same kind of attention-seeking good deeds, the same ignoring vulnerable people, and so are we. Alistair Begg said, as he was preaching on this text, Jesus is saying, 
do you know how quickly you could go from a follower of me to a proponent of a sham religion? How you could start sincerely about the affairs of the gospel and have your head turned by money or have your head turned by pride or have your head or your heart or soul of your congregation totally moved and turned in another direction and suddenly another generation grows up and says, how did this place get like this? It's not a warning that is abstract. Jesus says, beware of this approach to ministry and life. The question when it comes to our motivations and our religion and our good deeds is, can we be just as joyful doing good deeds where no one can see us as we would be out where everyone would notice? If not, then we're seeking whose glory? Ours, not God's. Del Ralph Davis tells of how J.B. Phillips was, some, was consulting a psychiatrist and that the psychiatrist could tell that one of Phillips' problems was shame at the unacceptable conceit revealed in his inner thoughts. And so the psychiatrist told Phillips, jot down the things you're thinking, which he did. And one of Phillips' entry in May 1945 read like this, I want to be colossal or soon die. Christianity is a bore unless it can help me to demonstrate my uniqueness. I really haven't any interest in others unless they are connected with building up my reputation. My reputation, that's the thing, the best vicar ever. And Davis says on this, that is stark and perhaps shocking. We try to evade such candor, but I have to say I understand that perfectly. He said, pardon my grammar, but it is both mad and me. It is well with my soul to see how unwell my soul is. And I must echo what Davis says for the simple fact that I am, perhaps more than anyone in this room, in danger of giving into the temptation of being like the scribes. How easy it is to be a leader in an organization who has a hot mic every week to toot our own horn and then just add something to the end about how God did it. How easy it is to inject credentials and accolades into all sorts of places and conversations. You want to know how insidious this is? What if I said that so that you'll think I'm humble? And what if I said that so you'll think I'm honest? Do you see? This is how easy it is. We look at the scribes and we think, I would never do like that. But if Jesus didn't think we could be just like that, he never have told this to his disciples and the Holy Spirit would have never inspired Luke to include it in his gospel. So we need to be always vigilant not to have a religion like this. We must be constantly checking our hearts and motivations. We must do the hard work of honest self-evaluation and diagnostics. Scott McKnight offered this helpful advice. He said to develop A before-God-alone approach to piety, we must become more introspective, asking, why am I doing this? Who is watching me? We also need to ask about our pleasures. What is it about this religious deed that brings me pleasure? We should also ask about ourselves. Do I grumble when I do something pious and no one notices? Do I get jealous or roll my eyes when someone else gets credit and I didn't? Do I get upset if I don't get my way? As if my level of influence should be higher because of what I give or what I do. How serious is this? How serious is this sort of posturing, braggadocious, attention-seeking, adulation-loving, vulnerable, devouring religion? What is the fate of those who have this kind of religion that is both a means of self-justification and a way to take advantage of others? What did Jesus say at the end of verse 47? They will receive greater condemnation. James Edward wrote, 
the kind of sentence that I wish I'd come up with when he said, the judgment of Jesus on those who traffic in piety for the purpose of self-aggrandizement is uncompromising. They will be punished most severely. God is not at all impressed by the approach of the scribes. And unless they cast off their pride and false religion and put on humility that is required to repent and bend knee to Jesus, they will be doomed and they will be doomed forever. But lest we be left with a bummer of an example, Jesus offers a positive, contrasting example in the next scene. This leads us to our third point. Third and final point, point number three. True religion offers one's whole life. True religion offers one's whole life. This is why the chapter break is so unfortunate. Jesus is giving a good example of true religion in light of the bad example of the scribes. Like, they're clearly connected, right? Jesus doesn't want to warn against the scribes' false religion and then turn to like an unrelated short teaching about money. Nor can it be a coincidence that Jesus said that the scribes devour widows' houses, and then the next teaching, the main figure is what? A widow, right? Now, widows, you understand, were the most vulnerable people in this society. In a time and a place where women and children were completely dependent on the husbands and fathers to provide, a widow was someone who had no source of income and were typically left to defend, to fend for themselves. <clears throat> this is why the Old Testament often commands taking care of widows and orphans, because if the people didn't see the community responsibility to care for them and love them with the sort of neighbor love that God commands, they were likely to go hungry. And this is what makes what the scribes did more egregious, Yes. They were taking advantage of the most vulnerable in society for their own personal gain. Let me give you a modern-day example. How about those who peddle the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, right? They stare into their $200,000 camera, and they tell little old ladies and poor families to send them a check, and God will multiply it. And then they take the money that got from poor people uh, that they bathed in spiritual language. They go buy another mansion, and another private jet, another trip to the Botox Center where they get enough Botox to put down an African elephant, while the poor are left with little, all on the promise that God will multiply their offering. And what if God doesn't? See, here's the brilliance of their schemes. Oh, it's because you didn't have enough faith. You see? Send me more money, and I'll pray that you'll have greater faith. You see? These charlatans are just like the scribes, devouring the houses of the most vulnerable for dishonest gain. And the language of Luke 20, verse 47, is graphic. They devoured their houses. This stretches the destruction that the scribes of those like them would leave in their wake and how they took from a group most in need and left them devastated. And to make matters worse, they used spiritual language to do it. No wonder their fate is more severe. So now let's picture the scene of verses 1 through 4, chapter 21. At the temple, there was 13 trumpets that were trumpet-shaped receptacles, okay, outside in the temple. And that served to collect the free will offerings that were used to underwrite temple worship, okay? So people would come up to these trumpets, and they'd drop their money in, and it would clang around, and it'd go down, okay? Now, remember, we're in Passover week here still, aren't we? So hundreds of thousands of people have descended onto Jerusalem, and they show up to the temple, and they would take their bags of money that they saved up all year, and they would dump them into these trumpets. And you'd hear these clanging, and, you know, some wealthy fellow would come up with a big old honking bag of money, and he'd dump it in, and people would hear all this 
big, loud clanging go down. They say to each other, wow, did you hear all that clanging? That guy gave a lot of money. I bet God is really pleased with him. Now, in all the hustle and bustle and clanging of the rich people, giving their copious amounts, in comes our main character, a poor widow. You know, no one probably even noticed her. They probably didn't even know she was there. And she walks up, and she puts in two small copper coins. And these coins were called leptas, and they were the smallest currency of all. Let me give you an idea. They were worth one one-hundredth of a denarius, which means they were worth one one-hundredth of a day's wage. It would take a common laborer four minutes of work to get one lepta. Four minutes. Now, I have, I have a lepta right here to show you. If I can. See it? You see it? can't see it. Who can? God can see it. Now, here's the thing, right? The wealthy people put in far more than she did, didn't they? Yet they put in far less. Does that sound contradictory? Not in God's economy. Jesus says the widow put in more, but how can that be? How can it be that she put in more than these wealthy folks dumping in bags of valuable coins that takes 10 minutes to clang around and drain. Meanwhile, this poor widow throws in two leptas that hardly make a sound at all. Jesus tells us, doesn't he? The rich donated from their excess, the poor from her poverty. What the rich gave cost them little. They weren't skipping meals, right, because of it. Yeah, they weren't out of their houses because of it. They weren't wondering how they were going to survive because of it. But what does Jesus say about the widow? That's all she had. She might not be eating dinner because of that. She might not eat tomorrow or the next day. But in God's economy, someone who puts in from their poverty and sacrifices gives more than one who gives from their excess, even if the real dollar of value is more. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus does not put down those who contribute more money, does he? That's nowhere here. <clears throat> Rather, he is noting the woman's contribution and saying Though it is small in size to man, it is not small to God because the size of the gift isn't always indicative of the sacrifice made. Let's think of it like this, okay? You guys know Elon Musk is? Took over Twitter and ruined it, right? Elon Musk is currently the richest man in the world. He's worth $219 billion dollars. If he gave $100 million to charity, now that sounds like a lot of money. But what did it really cost him? I mean, really. That's nothing to him. He's not feeling that. He probably has that amount in his couch cushions in one of his seven palatial mansions. Right? And if he was standing there with a pub, you remember publisher clearinghouse checks? If he was standing there with a publisher clearinghouse check, that said $100 million on it, and he was next to a guy who makes $30,000 a year, and he has a normal check that says $10,000. People might say, well, Elon is more generous. $100 million compared to $10,000 is a huge difference. Why is that other guy even bothering? What difference does his gift make anyway? But what's the question Jesus is asking? Who sacrificed more? 
You see? This is Jesus' point. Because, see, this text is meant to teach us more about Jesus than it is about finances. It's telling us that what Jesus values is not the same as what we value. That in contrast to self-inflated windbag scribes, that God loves quiet faithfulness. And that no act, listen, beloved, no act done from a heart for God goes overlooked by him. You see? God cares far more about the giver than he does the gift. He doesn't need anything, does he? He cares about the heart of the giver. And he is after the kind of costly trust that this widow evidences through her quiet piety because it's from a heart of true religion. So true religion starts from the inside and works outward rather than the false religion of the religious leaders that works outward and puts on a show but never touches the heart. See, and the same question we asked earlier is relevant here, isn't it? Will we do good deeds if no one sees them? Will we be faithful even in the quiet places where people may never even hear about them? Is our piety external and performative or is it internal in the heart? Do we serve God for God and not for self-advantage? You know, if you're on social media, I bet you've seen people who have their phones out or their friends are recording them and they like go up to a homeless person and give them a stack of money. Or they go into a fast food joint and they buy like 200 burgers and they fill themselves giving away homeless people saying things like just trying to bless folks, you know? Imagine being homeless, by the way, and some guy in Jordan's walks up with a camera recording, shoving some food in your face for social media clout. A question has to be asked. If we couldn't record ourselves helping others, would we still do it? If we couldn't post our good deeds on social media, would we still do those good deeds? If those people weren't constantly validated with these likes and the comments and the shares, would they find motivation to keep helping? This text is meant to encourage us to live lives of costly obedience and to remind us that God sees acts of kindness and generosity and faithfulness and that this should be enough reason to do them. Why? Because we're doing them for God, not for ourselves. And if he sees, then what does it matter if anyone else does? We should be playing for an audience of one. It's to remind us that things we think are small and go unnoticed are bigger than we think, and they will never go unnoticed by God, even if no other human sees them or knows about them. Little gifts can be taken for granted or not even noticed, yet sometimes they are, in fact, the biggest gifts of all. Friend, listen, there is no act of obedience, no act of faithfulness that escapes the watching eye of God. There is no act of kindness to a fellow image bearer that God does not see and is pleased by. On the other side, if ours is a piety that needs to be seen by men, then in others seeing those things and being impressed by them, that attention we get and the acclaim we get are our reward and nothing else. But for those who do small acts of good from a heart that has been changed by the gospel, God saw. God knows. God is pleased. Reformer John Calvin said it this way, the theater of God is in the hidden corners. Widow's heart could not be any more different than that of the praying tactics of others. And because of her heart for God, because of her trust in his care, the offering she gave, which seems negligible, is measured as immense on the divine scale. 
things aren't always what they seem, are they? The respected religious leaders with their fancy robes and their places of honor, the respect given to them are ones who are damned. The rich man with his Santa Claus-esque bag of money that clinks and clangs and reverberates through the courtyard gave less than this unassuming widow who no one noticed, whose offering made no noise. What's the scene again? Jesus is at the temple. This is what we're told. He sees the widow that no one sees, and he points to her. And he goes, you see that widow? And maybe the disciples had to squint and go, who? Where? And Jesus said, like we do sometimes, follow my finger where it's pointing. Do you see her over by the 10th trumpet? Do you see her? No one saw her. Jesus saw her. Just like he sees the overlooked and the marginalized and the oppressed and the little and the unassuming, the vulnerable, because that's who he came for. And when people who feel small, and overlooked and feels as though their acts of good deeds that are motivated by just a love for God and others realize that the king of the universe sees them and loves them and died for them, they'll give their whole lives to him. What other option is there really? Well, don't you see? Don't you see that Jesus is not calling for something that he didn't do? Don't you see that? When Jesus says, give me your whole life, It costs to follow me. Pursue quiet, ordinary, overlooked faithfulness. He's calling us to something he himself took on. Friends, do you realize God did not send a proxy? He didn't send a surrogate. He sent his son. His son. Jesus Christ, though in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus Christ, the one prophesied by David in Psalm 110, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty would become rich. Does that argue you flat? This is no no ho-hum gospel, is it? Creator God gave of himself paid a price that we cannot fathom so that you can be reconciled to your creator and know peace. What else can I say? what, What can I say to convince you that this glorious Christ is worthy to be the center of your life? That he is worthy of being the motivation for everything that you do. What can I say that will convince you that he's worthy of your costly obedience, even if it means your life? That he is worthy of giving up everything for. That sacrifice is an honor when it's for him. Would you behold him? And when you behold him, you will decide if he will be your king or your conqueror. Make the right choice today and bend your knee to him now and for the rest of your days.